The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Today, we talk with two plant geeks that met in a garden. Both are now directors of two prominent public gardens in North Carolina. Adrian Rothlin is the director of the Paul J. Senior Botanical Garden in Kernsville, North Carolina. John Rothlin is the director of Ronaldo Gardens of Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They tell their stories and the stories of the amazing gardens they oversee, how they handle garden conflicts at home. Even their vacations are all about plants. This is episode 92, When Plant Geeks Get Married, with Adrian and John Rothling on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. How did two plant geeks become husband and wife? I'll let Adrian take the lead on this. I'm still scratching my head how it all happened. Being a plant nerd and growing up in Rochester, New York, it was certainly limited to the amount of gardening I can actually do throughout the year. So certainly throughout the months of like, especially January, February, and March, I was bored. I didn't have a job. And then I also wanted to pursue some educational opportunities. I saw an opportunity at Longwood Gardens where they had a two-year horticulture program and I applied for it and I was accepted. That didn't really bring me much further south. But it did some, and I was able to garden year-round, especially being at Loma Gardens where you can garden under glass. John makes fun of me for saying I could garden under glass. I was also just interested in moving further south where I can actually enjoy gardening year-round. A lot of my colleagues up at Longwood Garden, upon graduation, said, well, you need to consider calling Tony Avent at Plant Delights Nursery because he has a wonderful garden and you can garden year round. And so I did. I called him up and I said, I want to come work for you. And he's like, okay, come for an interview. And so I did. (laughs) I did uh, on Thanksgiving. I can't remember if it was actually Thanksgiving Day, but he gave up part of his Thanksgiving holiday to give me an interview. And I was hooked to the South and then I was hooked to Plant Delights Nursery for sure. Well, how did that lead into husband and wife? John, you were working there at the time. Yeah, I had been working there and working on my degree at NC State University. My mentor, Todd Lassane, had kind of said, hey, you ought to get a job at Plant Delights. I think it would be good for you. Working in the gardens part-time, any chance I could get to not only learn, but also make some money to keep going through the college. Been there for about a year. Went from helping with shipping, but also working in the gardens. When I came in, I was overlapping with the curator there. He was actually leaving to go to Longwood Gardens. I was coming in, and I remember going to lunch, and I come back from lunch, and there's this gentleman out in the garden weeding, and I'm just looking at him, and Rodney goes, oh, Adrian, I want to introduce you to John. He's one of your assistants in the garden. He stood up from weeding, and I thought to myself, that's the man I'm going to marry. <laughs> I thought that instantly. And we did. We just ended up spending the summer hitting it off. And we're very passionate about horticulture. And we did. We enjoy talking about plants with each other. Made such a connection with us. And I just remember just thinking, wow, you know, I get to come to this place not expecting anything. But I found John and it was just amazing, especially to have somebody share that same passion. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for us. Well, Adrian, what is the best garden advice John has ever given you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, just do it and have fun. If you're not enjoying it, then don't push yourself to do something you don't want to do. If it's hot and sweaty, go take a break. If you're doing it all day long and you don't want to go home and do it at night, it's okay. It is okay. Instead of going out to pull some weeds, why don't you go grab a beer and just walk around the garden instead, which I love doing. 
Okay, John, we're going to reverse it. What's the best gardening advice Adrian's ever given you? He usually is the one who gives me guidance on texture. I'm always asking her, hey, what do you think of this combination? She's got the detail eye. I'm more about, well, it's a really cool plant, and where should I put it? She kind of, well, you know, fine texture. Why don't you put it near a big elephant ear there or something like that? She kind of brings the detail and design more so than I am. Okay, you're both directors of two very prominent public gardens in North Carolina. I'd like for you to introduce your gardens to us. I started working for Paul J. Senior Botanical Garden in 2008 when there was nothing here. Paul Senior was a local businessman. He actually had a car dealership. He also had a wholesale nursery. He had construction and bought land, sold land. So he was a philanthropist. He had a lot of business here and people knew him throughout the community. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer and passed within three months. During that three-month period, he told his two sons he would love to leave an endowment to start a gift to the community. This is a gift on seven acres. There was an old abandoned Dairy Queen. The doors were shut. It was falling apart. The weeds were growing up to the road. It was just an empty, debilitated lot. It was an eyesore in the town of Kernersville. Our endowment purchased the property, built this fantastic garden. People are just so blown away by what it used to look like 15, 20 years ago compared to what it looks like now. Paul Sr. loved traveling the world, and so this is a reflection of everything he loved about gardening right here on Seven Acres in downtown Kernersville. We have everything from an outdoor amphitheater to a Japanese garden, a wonderful kitchen garden, a formal garden, just many gardens, many themes, and so many plants. And we're just so proud of what we've done in the 14 years that we have been open to the public. And I'm proud to say that I have put almost every single plant in the gardens here. It's just wonderful from going from ground zero to what we have here today. 14 years is a long time. Listen, stay smart, ask questions, communicate. And it led me to being the director of this garden. Sounds like a big task that you undertook there. You mentioned there was a Dairy Queen structure there. Did you get rid of the structure or did you use that in your garden? Took the backhoe to it and just demolished it. There were two other homes on the property. One home was actually historic. It was bought out, picked up, and actually moved around the corner from here. It was a nice historic home. The other home had no historical value whatsoever, and it was torn down. Any older trees that you were able to save? There is one ash on the property. This property, we do think 50 plus years ago, this used to be a working farm because there are two rows of red cedars lining this property and it looked like old fence, wire fence was attached to them. So whether the birds came and planted this hedge for us or maybe the hedge was there first and then somebody put the fence up afterwards, you could see the scars of the fence on those cedars. It's actually really cool. We're preserving those as much as we can. I would say those two things, an ash tree and a row of red cedars are claim to hopefully keep up with the history. Also, when we demolished one of the houses, Todd dug up Lycoris radiata, which is your surprise lilies. We actually put them right back after the house was torn down and we started planting. We actually put those right back. They date back to the original house that was there as probably from the 50s or 60s. Okay, John, introduce us to your garden. Our garden is Renolda Gardens. It was part of the original estate of R.J. and Catherine Reynolds. R.J. Reynolds Tobacco. I always kind of say that how Adrian's garden is 10 years old and mine's 110. This was part of over a thousand acres that Catherine had amassed together. She was just an amazingly progressive woman. She did all the planning, all the working with the architects, making decisions, everything. Built this village that supported the estate. Her whole purpose of having this model farm and village was to demonstrate the latest research in how to farm, teaching these local farmers how to reinvigorate their soils. You normally think about estates and where they put the gardens. It's usually right behind the house. Ours is a little different where it was put out by the road because she had the intent that this garden was going to be there for the public. You do have to acknowledge that this was during Jim Crow time, so it wasn't all the public. We're doing all of our research to honor everyone who participated in creating this place. The greenhouse was built in 1913. It was a Lord and Burnham greenhouse. Formal gardens were built and designed in 1917 by Thomas Sears. We've done our best to keep true to the design intent that Thomas Sears came up with. They did a massive restoration in the mid-90s to bring the garden back to its period of significance, which was kind of like 1917 to 1924. 
when I came on board in 2018, slightly different aspect because when they did the renovation, it was trying to source the original plants, tracking down old cultivars. That difficult to do these days. Gardens need to change. The climate has changed. We have new diseases, new pests. So I kind of like, what's the design telling us? What are they looking for? We might need to pick new materials. It's trying to present the garden as it was in 1917, but we might have to tweak the plant materials because things like boxwood blight that are prevalent in our area, maybe going back with more boxwood isn't the right thing to do. What's amazing, and this was something that I was guilty of, there's the four acres of the formal gardens, but then there's 130 more acres that's still part of the estate. So there's a 16-acre meadow, there's two miles of trails, there's woodlands, there is what was Lake Catherine. It was a 16-acre lake. It's silted in, so now it's more of a wetland. That's what I love about this place, is it's got a little bit of everything. If you're not into formal gardens or rose gardens, well, you can walk the trails. And we've been clearing the invasives out and replanting natives. It's almost everything on the spectrum of horticulture, which is what I love about this place. It really leans into Catherine's progressive nature, being at the forefront of things, of showing people, you know, hey, how do we tackle some of these new diseases that we're dealing with? People are always asking, especially about boxwood blight in this area, what we're using. Have you got any survivors in your boxwood or they're all gone? We've been really lucky. We haven't had that much in front of Renolda House, which is the bungalow. It's the country's largest bungalow kind of like when you think about Biltmore, the size of that estate. Well, RJ at one point was the richest man in North Carolina. The bungalow is not tiny. We did have boxwood blights out front. We removed them. We did one of the inkberry hollies. I think they're going to come out because they're doing just what an inkberry holly does, and they've got naked legs. By that, I mean the bottom third is bare, so it really isn't doing what the boxwood used to do. We've been fairly lucky, but we haven't been hit hard. Most of the boxwood is still okay, but we just ripped all the English boxwood, which is one of the more susceptible ones, out of the formal gardens because we had 40% of the hedges were either undersized or missing. Just didn't make sense from a sustainable standpoint to go back with more boxwood. Made the decision all the boxwood have come out. We've come back in with something different. What are you using? Actually, one thing was an idea I got visiting Adrian's garden. She had Southern Moon, Indian Hawthorn. I looked at it and I'm like, this is the exact same height and width that I need for a hedge. Along our east-west axis, we've done the Southern Moon, Indian Hawthorn. And then running north to south, the way the garden slopes on the um, northern end of the garden, where all the water goes, so it was always wetter. The boxwood always struggled there. We're using uh, distillium. All the cultivar names now end in box. I think it's jewel box because I've planted distillium in wet. I've planted it in dry and it doesn't blink. So at least we'll have a uniform hedge running that whole way. What kind of challenges are you seeing, Adrian, in your garden? We also have boxwoods and we are conscious of the boxwood blight. Thankfully, the only boxwood damage we've seen is from leaf miners. Right now, they're all yellow because they're so chlorotic. If we put out something like iron chelate, that'll green them back up. I just contribute it to the weather and just say, well, you know, we all suffer from low sun. Just let them be. They'll green right back up in the summer months. We're a nonprofit, and we weren't left with a huge endowment. We have to be very careful about what we spend, how we spend it. We do look for donations or grants. We look for stuff all the time. I'm actually kind of really proud of this, but the town of Kernersville is going to resume ownership of the gardens so that they can see that our future is secure. We can have access to a lot of resources that we've never had before. Something as simple as if a soap dispenser in the bathroom breaks, we don't have to buy those 99 cent plastic bottles anymore. We can just go call our friends and say, we need to replace this. And they're like, got it. They do it the next day. Just something as simple as that. We also have access to a track hoe or a cultivator. We're blown away by the amount of resources that opened up to us. I think the reason cities are so interesting there is because of the amount of tourist dollars they generate, isn't it? We bring in a huge chunk of those tourist dollars by having a small event space where we have weddings or parties or other organizations come in and have meetings. We're contributing heavily to the town of Kernersville's income or tourism dollars. Tell us about some of the cool, fun, creative projects y'all have been working on. We were 
were just talking about this today. We have some visitors who actually braved the cold weather to come visit us today, and they were really blown away by two topiary trees we have on the property. The first one is a red cedar. The second one is a cherry laurel. They were actually originally pruned by a southern man um, from South Carolina named Pearl Fryer. He's a self-taught topiary artist. He has no official training whatsoever. He came up here twice. He got on like a six-foot ladder and sculpted these things. He just had a vision in his head and created this art. We have him in the parking lot. That was seven, eight years ago that he came to visit us. Josh Williams, our garden manager, has been fine-tuning those, keeping the spiral in the cherry laurel. He actually trained the top into a heart. Cornerstone is the heart of the triad, so that's certainly fitting to be in our garden with this big, giant green heart. The cedar, he's actually making chunks in the spiral so that it's not a formal spiral. It's like sculpture rock throughout this green orb, if you will. And the top is all funky like a bad, wicked hair. It's weird. (laughs) Those are two conversation pieces. They're in our parking lot. We have the prettiest parking lot in North Carolina, I think, (laughs) between the topiaries and the agaves, these hardy century plants that actually bloomed a couple years ago. And so we had these 20-foot flower spikes in the middle of the parking lot. We also have an upside-down tree. One of our board members went to go visit the gardens in Glacier, Alaska, and they had a storm roll through and knock down a bunch of their trees. Well, the gardens had no means to get equipment in there, so what they did is they inverted the trees where they brought the trunks up in the air, cemented the trunks into the ground, and they have these tree towers. Our board member's like, you need to do this in Kernersville. So we have a tree tower. It's 10 feet in the air. The root ball is huge. It's probably six feet across. And we just kind of made pockets into it where we put in soil and put in some plants. And we have plants draping down this upside down tree. It's kind of cool. Our garden is very whimsical. And there is lots of facets of what Paul Senior enjoyed throughout his life in our gardens. It's amazing that we only have seven acres and that we're doing all this on just a short, small piece of property. Real estate is really important. Did he give any directions about what to include in the garden or just a broad scope? Fortunately, no. So he was diagnosed with 1998, died within three months. That's when he told his two sons he was going to leave an endowment to start the garden. And his two sons were just like, we had no idea. He had this passion in him. The garden started 10 years after his death. The only thing he did wish was to have a kitchen garden because he knew that children someday, their only source of food would come from mom and dad, which means they go to the grocery store. So fruits and vegetables came out of the vegetable department or in a bag or sometimes in the farmer's market. So our vegetable garden, we have these nice raised beds where kids can actually see fruits and vegetables growing at eye level. They actually come and harvest and taste and sample. And then whatever doesn't get used for educational purposes will get donated to area food relief. That's the only thing. Paul Singer asked was to show kids where fruits and vegetables come from. Okay, John, what about co-projects that get everybody excited at your place? One thing that I was really excited that we got done was there's a alley of weeping cherries that surrounds the formal gardens. It's 44 weeping Higgin cherries. At one point in time, there's records of the Reynolds having to hire additional security because so many people would come to see these cherries. Got some great historical photos of the cherries. Barbara Babcock Millhouse, who's the granddaughter of Catherine Reynolds, and Catherine passed away in 1924, a very young age. Barbara had told my boss, Allison Perkins, she said, before I die, I want to stand under those cherries once again. We all know cherries are not the longest lived trees. Right when I got here, we had cut down the last original cherry. With an LA, it's supposed to be matching. Uh, We had eight large cherries that were about you know 30 feet tall the rest were like five feet tall to 10 feet tall so the whole design element was lost okay we are going to start getting some things done with the help of chip calloway wonderful landscape architect who has an amazing background working in historical gardens he helped connect us with a nursery up in maryland where we tracked down some large weeping cherries we took out all the original cherries that were here We had eight of the 44 had any size to them. So everything came out and we brought in 44 new large weeping cherries. That really was the kickstarter on all the work we've been doing over the last couple of years of really putting a stake in the ground of going, things are happening here. I'm really excited about those cherries. They didn't flower that well last year because they were putting all their energy into making roots, which was perfectly fine with me. It's like, as long as you're alive, you're good with me. What I love about not only just bringing the cherries back is I always tell people we're a historical garden, but I like to look at not just where we've been, but where we want to go. 
One of the things we did during this project was we brought electricity into the garden. Before I got here, there were three outlets in the entire garden. My vision is, is as these cherries start getting some size, we're going to bring in landscape lighting to uplight the cherries. Phase two will be happening shortly if the rains don't make my life miserable. This aspect of being able to have evening in the garden and have these weeping cherries uplit, especially at winter time, that was the project that has really started a lot of things happening. Right now, we're getting ready. There's bluestone slate walks in the garden that they're in really bad shape. Those will be all coming out and being redone with an eye towards accessibility. They were two feet wide. We're widening them to three feet. So if someone's in a wheelchair or a walker, they'll have a good surface to walk around and get through the garden. Knock on wood, come March, we will have redone almost every aspect of the formal gardens. I'm excited to have those projects behind me. Is that slate, are you recycling back into the walk or are you coming with totally new material? Totally new material. The mason that we were working with said, go back with that slate. It's already delaminating and splitting apart. So to put it back in five years, it's going to continue to keep breaking down. Of course, people are like, oh, you should sell each piece of slate. And I'm like, are you signing up to be a volunteer to help do that? <laughs> I'm really excited to come March to be able to take a step back. I think my staff is excited about not having as many projects on top of them as well. In the formal gardens, in the lower part of the formal gardens, it's four parterres, and two of them are historic rose gardens, and then the other two are the color gardens, pink and white garden and a blue and yellow garden. Both the color gardens were completely ripped out. We reworked the soil, brought in a lot of permatill to help with drainage and also to deter those little critters called voles. That and then the main walk, all of that came out. They were able to get everything done before the rains and the extreme cold set in. Got just this wonderful, light, fluffy soil to work in to start replanting. Adrian, what have you been working on this winter? We made this garden lit. And I'm going to tell you what we've done. Four years ago, I saw a video of a garden showcasing flowers made out of plastic bottles. I liked the video. I liked the gardens. And I liked what they did. But the flowers didn't look like something that I was identifying with. One of the things that our gardens relate to is tulips. Ever since the very beginning of this garden, 14 years ago, we have showcased a display of tulips and daffodils in our formal gardens. Our formal gardens was also designed by Chip Calloway, the same gentleman that John mentioned. He wanted a historic feature here. So we have these paisley-shaped beds edged in boxwoods. In spring, our gardens draw crowds by the thousands. Here we are in December, in January, February, of course, um, slowest months of the year for any visitors here at the gardens. I needed to find a way to bring people to this garden during the winter months. When I saw this video of what this garden was doing for Christmas, I went to my volunteers. I said, let's make a tulip out of a plastic bottle. So we started with a 16-ounce water bottle. I brought my version of what that looked like to the volunteers. They brought their version to me. And they had like 10 bottles that they turned into works of art. And I was like, oh my gosh, those are so beautiful. I threw mine away because it did not hold up to the standards. I'm like, I thought I was doing a good job, but they did a phenomenal job. But first year we had 400 tulips lit. We put them on bamboo stakes. We actually wired them through strands of Christmas lights. They went from 400 to now we have 4,000 tulips alone on display. Then they add new things. So they did daffodils. We have a couple hundred daffodils now. The daffodils are made out of a two-liter base with a one-liter mouthpiece inserted because daffodils have a cup and petals. They've made poinsettias, sunflowers, dogwoods. Lotus, clematis, just goes on and on. We now have 7,200 flowers made out of recycled bottles on display, all lit through the Christmas season. And we get as many visitors as we do, equal amount of visitors as we do in spring. Now through the winter months, even with this cold, wet weather, we've had to cancel a couple nights, but we've added a few nights. We still draw hundreds of people to come visit this garden in a three-hour period every night. It's just amazing that people come to downtown Kernersville. They experience our showcase. They continue on through downtown Kernersville. They might go to some of the other historic features here in town. We've made some plastic miracles, let me just tell you. We even have two Chihuly chandeliers. If you don't know Chihuly, he's a glass artist and he makes wonderful glass artwork. We made two chandeliers that look like the real thing out of plastic bottles. It's just amazing. And they're all on display right now. A lot of water drinking going on to get all that many bottles in. <laughs> I don't know where the volunteers have gotten the bottles, but all I can say is they bring them in clean and ready to go. So kudos to our volunteers for doing that. 
I saw that on your website. I'd recommend folks go and see that. When I first saw it, I thought, well, how are they getting all those tulips to light up like that? <laughs> then I realized or I read some more that they were being made out of plastic. And I think you've got a, a worksheet there that tells you how to do it on your website. We have a group of Girl Scouts make a how-to video for us, and it's on YouTube. Oh, okay. We'll want to get the link for that and make it where people can see that. Yeah. Go to our webpage and we'll have a link for that for you. We get two reactions. The first one is people come out during the day and they're like, these people are stupid. Why are you planting Darwin hybrid tulips in December? And then they go for a closer look and like, oh my goodness, it's a flower made out of a plastic bottle. We got to come back at 530 when it's dark and see this at night. Two amazing reactions. Well, as a garden designer, what is a design idea, or it could be several, that visitor could take away and use in their next garden project? First and foremost, I want our gardens to be relatable. There's so many wonderful sources for nurseries and local garden centers. Right here in Curtisville, all we have is box stores, which is absolutely fine. So guess what? I'm going to go to the big box store and I'm going to get some flats of plants and I'm just going to probably utilize them in a way that somebody was like, oh, I can do that with my plants. We took this old plastic water barrel. We actually cut holes out of it and we made it into a strawberry jar. Just something as simple as that. Recycle, repurpose, reuse, and just make it relatable. No homeowner is ever going to have a garden that looks like Longwood Gardens. Lama Gardens is amazing. Don't get me wrong. I love the place. I just don't think that that's something somebody can do at their house. I want our gardens to be something somebody can do at their own gardens at home. Take an idea maybe that you have and put a twist on it or tweak it some for their own personal garden, right? Yeah, that's what I did. How about you, John? I always tell people, don't be afraid to fail. That's something when I started here with my staff, I'm like, guys, you know, just like any good gardener, there's always next year, try new things. Don't be afraid for things not to work out. J.C. Ralston used to always say that if you're not killing plants, you're not learning. That phrase, I think, has liberated so many people because everyone, oh, I'm going to just kill plants. It's like, that's part of the process. Try new things. I think that's what we're always doing. Sometimes maybe it doesn't work out. Every year we do a newsletter and I try to write about, okay, these were the good surprises. These were the bad surprises. Did a whole sweep of this thing that waited till the day before frost before it started flowering. Have fun with it. Try new things. Don't worry about what the books are telling you. If you get enjoyment about the plant, go for it. I remember doing kind of a consult for one of the folks over here at the university and talking in her front yard and she was asking about some plant. And I said, does this plant bring you joy? And she's like, not really. I said, so dig it out. It's a knockout rose. Trust me, there's more of them. I think that's the thing is have the freedom to try new things and not feel bad about if it doesn't work out. There's a lot of very experienced gardeners right now that are sitting there walking their gardens right now going, okay, well, uh, that definitely did not survive a bomb cyclone or whatever just happened to us. Killing plants is part of the process. Okay, Adrian, what's the question I should ask John? What is his favorite plant? What's your favorite plant, John? There's groups of plants that I love. I love red buds. I've always loved red buds. Lucky enough, uh, Hearts of Gold Red Bud, which was the first gold leaf red bud, is actually my find. I always loved them. I love the work that Denny Werner has been doing with red buds. They're a great native tree. The species itself, all the different ones that places like the Ralston are bringing in and Atlanta Botanic, amazing new species that I've never seen before. I love red buds. Okay, John, what's the question I should ask Adrian? What's the most challenging aspect of gardening? (laughs) Okay, I'll answer this two ways. When it comes to here at the Botanical Garden, now that I'm director, I might have to lay low. And obviously, I have wonderful staff that makes great decisions. Let them learn from those decisions, whether they're good or bad decisions. But I need to step back and realize that, yeah, I am a plant nerd, but kudos to my staff for doing such an amazing job. But then also at home, John and I always seem to find ways to disagree about certain things with the garden. We have very little sun in our yard. I want that area. I want the area for sun, and I want to be able to garden in it. John can have the rest. That one little area is probably, what, half acre at the most? He can have the remaining 10 and a half acres. I don't care. I just want my sunny area. That's it. (laughs) Is that the biggest conflict you have at home over the garden? Yeah. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll do it. I've got my areas. I just make more sun. Mother Nature has been making some more sun for us as well. When those winds were rolling through with this recent storm that came through, I'm going, I just heard another tree go down. I heard the crack that night, and I thought, that sounded awfully close, and I'm kind of anticipating it hitting the roof. Yeah, it's a little unnerving. Got really big oaks right around our house, and as much as I don't like 
taking down trees. Got 11 acres. I think this isn't going to make that much of an impact. And it's firewood. I did manage to bring in two dogs in our relationship. Of course, we brought in more, but the first dog, Daisy, so that was 13 years ago. We were talking about families and, and whatnot. And I said, well, let's get a dog. And so we did. And we got a boxer and John fell in love with this boxer. Unfortunately, she met her age and she passed away in June. We work with a boxer rescue and they brought in a litter of puppies not too long ago, like eight of them. And I just kind of went behind John's back and I'm like, what's going on with that particular puppy? And next thing you know, we're adopting a puppy <laughs> and plus the two dogs that we already have. So he's like, what? Are you sure? You sure you want to do this? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> so I've done two things where I've kind of slipped a dog in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, how do you reconcile dogs and gardening in the same area? Part of that sunny area that I've been working with also is fenced in for the dogs. But being on 11 acres, I know my dogs won't escape. We do have to watch out for wild animals. That's the only thing with that 11 acres we have to be careful of. I don't mind the dogs being out there with me. They're good. They're going to stay with us. And Daisy was probably one of the ones where John's like, what did we just do? Because she ended up digging two of your plants that you brought back from Japan. Yeah, I distinctly remember I had a variegated Daphnophyllum that like really plead my case with customs of please don't make me cut it back anymore. Babying that thing after three years, then finally having the confidence to put it in the yard. And then I remember a week later going, what's Daisy got in her mouth? And I was like, oh, no. She had me wrapped around her little paw at that point, And I was like, I'll find another one. So it was a goner? It was a goner, yes. But we have plenty of room now to do the <laughs> land for the garden, the nature, the detailed work, and the dogs. Yeah, the, the dog area doesn't have the really priceless stuff. It's like, oh, and Nellie Stevens Holly, I can replace that. <laughs> what does vacation look like for the Pothlands family? <laughs> I'm not a planner. I'm just like seat in my pants, and I will just say, let's go here today. Let's go here tomorrow. Um, I just want to sleep in for a second, you know, just let's, let's go have brunch. (laughs) Meanwhile, John's like, breakfast was three hours ago. Let's go. Let's get up. Let's get moving. Anytime we do go on vacation, we always try to do around plants. We're we're starting to mature a little bit. So we're, we're throwing in like antique stores and, and museums in there now. So it's not just about plants anymore. Yeah, it is. Especially when these days are like 90 degrees or when it's really cold. <laughs> it's funny. With us, it's the benefit of both of us being where we are in our careers and in the same fields. When we go to the American Public Gardens Association, the national conference, we'll tack on a couple extra days at the end of the conference and do more gardens. Before the pandemic, we went down to, I think it was in Fort Lauderdale that year, TPIE, the Tropical Plant Expo. And I just remember everyone looking at us with this puzzled look of going, you're driving to Florida? Yeah. When we drove back, we had these photos of the car just packed to the gills with plants. And it's like, can't do this on a plane. We even did that when we went to Alabama. We drove a box truck from North Carolina to Alabama. It was empty on the way down. Should have gotten smarter and flew down and just rented it on the way back. But no, we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've had a couple trips like that up to Pennsylvania. I think Bob Lyons has a good photo of us standing on the back of a rented U-Haul crammed to the gills. This is for your personal garden? It's usually for work, but some things usually sneak their way in. (laughs) There's no one that ever says no. We might have this plant that's $10, but yeah, we got to get the $20 plant. You know, the species that's $20 because it's variegated or whatever. And you want to get this? Sure. The word no does not exist when it comes to plants. Yeah. Even back in 2008 with the downsizing that went on and it's kind of like, okay, we really got to watch money. No, we still kept buying plants. It's like mortgage or plants. We'll figure out the mortgage. Thankfully, we've never had a problem. There isn't a voice of reason of going, do you really need that? Because in the back of both our minds, it's like, yeah, we need it. We'll fit it. (laughs) Well, what have you recently learned about horticulture? I know you're two very experienced gardeners and plant geeks, but we like to say as gardeners, we learn something new every day. So, Adrian, what's the latest thing you've learned? Hmm, That's a good question, because it is always about learning something new every day. Um... Well, I guess with this cold weather, it was really interesting to go from 
for John, I'm probably going to steal your answer because this just happened. We went from a 50 degree day to single digits in one day. And today I actually walked around to look at some of the evergreens on our property and just to see what's going on. And before I even got out the door, I can look at an evergreen maple right here by the patio terrace. It's going to lose all its leaves. We read, don't prune, don't do anything. Wait until new buds emerge because they will emerge. There's a, another herbaceous plant that's been flowering all the way until last week, and it's a goner. But like John said, it'll re-sprout. It'll come back next year and be fine. I'm just going around now looking at some of the damage. And this was an interesting cold snap because it did happen within one day. I'll continue to go out tomorrow and continue to look around and see what other damage there is throughout the garden. But then it's like you'll come back in six months and say, wow, that really survived those particular temperatures. We've had extreme hot and cold in a matter of like four days or three days, but never in the same day. Yeah, this reminded me of some of those freezes we had back in the 80s, early 80s. And that's when I was just getting started in this business. You try to open a garden center and trying to find plant material when it's all frozen, it's pretty tough. (laughs) I was just talking with someone today. We were discussing the 80s freezes of when the camellias and the crepe myrtles were killed to the ground in North Carolina. Yeah, Adrian did steal my thunder a little bit because I was walking around our own yard. I've got weird stuff, some species camellias, and I'm kind of like, oh, that, you know, that, that one came through, no problem. Oh, that one is toast. It's always kind of like, what's going to surprise us? We have a hardy citrus that looks unfazed. We hit six degrees here. That's always the fun thing of going, as much as you hate these events, this is when you learn the most because it's like, okay, this really surprised me. Okay, this confirmed that this was not going to make it through. What citrus was it? Adrian, it's the one from Wyatt Lefevre's garden. Is it the Citrange Quat? I think it's the Citrange Quat. It's this grapefruit. Yeah, it's a citrus, a loqua, and a tangerine. It's got a lot in it. It's got three parents in it. It's a large grapefruit-like plant. Very bitter. Yeah. Kumquat. Yeah. It's a kumquat, a, a tangerine, and the hardy citrus. So it's got three different things in it. I got a client that keeps insisting to have citrus, and I keep saying, no, you don't want citrus here. He's determined. Well, before the freeze, what did you learn about horticulture that you didn't know? Doing a lot of the research into these renovations that are happening in the gardens, I've been doing a lot of looking at some different plants. I've been really fascinated by the swan series of anemones, these clumping forms. I really wish someone would continue that work because they're kind of monochromatic at this point. They don't have the pink. Looking at stuff like that, some different plants to start incorporating. I'm not going to stick to what was in 1917 going to add some new things in here. I feel like it's a failure if I don't have someone going every year. I've never seen that before. It's always trying to to track down some new plants, and I keep learning that the inventories are getting harder and harder to manage. I have an employee that kind of gets frustrated with me because it's like, why are you bringing these plants in if we're not planting them for another year? I'm like, because it was available. I know I'm going to use it at some point. I think that's the struggle right now. I'm hoping to go up to Manth the trade show up in Baltimore, it's navigating what nurseries are still out there because we've lost some great nurseries, some great mail order nurseries and sources for things. I think that's been the learning curve of going, okay, where can I track down Prunus Mume now? Fantastic flowering tree that some people like Camellia Forest, they've always done them. They've been having difficulty with it. Kind of like, where can I find these? Yeah, yeah. What did you learn before the freeze, Adrian? You know, our mayor of Kernersville is really gung-ho about wanting to help rebuild the monarch population. We're considered a monarch way station because we have enough species of Asclepias milkweed, butterflyweed on the property that we meet the minimum. One of the plants that we have is the tropical milkweed, which is Asclepias curasavica. And for years, I've been hearing the rumors about how it also introduces a mite. I do think there's some truth to that because we have some seeding around. It is an annual. It does self-sow for us. We had some on the front end of our building. And what's funny about it is where it's seeded in, it only gets morning sun. But it had the most population of caterpillars I've ever seen on a milkweed. Other than the species, I'm not seeing so many caterpillars. And so we probably counted at least 15 to 20 successful metamorphosis between the caterpillar and the adult, whatever you call that. We counted 15 to 20 successful completions of that and watched 20 of them escape and fly. 
But there were a small percentage, five or six, that the cocoons turned black immediately. If it is tied to that Asclepias curasavica, that species where it unfortunately introduces the mite, we're going to go in and we're probably going to make a net home so that we can actually take the cocoon and put them in uh, a place where the caterpillar could still eat the Asclepias, but then the cocoon could actually be protected from the mite that might get in there, get a screen and hopefully protect it. I think that's a fascinating thing, and I think we're going to continue to be a good source for milkweed. Do a little bit more education as to why that species of tropical milkweed is good for this but bad for that. Because a lot of people are like, you don't want to grow it at all. Get rid of it. It's like, wait a minute. You know, hold off. Caterpillars are eating it. They're munching it down to nub. Trying to educate people that it's good for this, but you can protect your cocoons too. So we're every year we're taking baby steps to make sure that our garden is considered the waste station. Mayor loves it, like I said, but next year is going to be that next step of actually making spot where they can be protected during that vulnerable stage. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Less turf. Oh, my God. (laughs) What were you going to say, John? I was going to say diversify the drum that plant people have been beating for decades. Please, there are other hollies other than Nellie Stevens' hollies. So many fantastic ones. Try new things. That's what drives me crazy is when it's the same dirty dozen of plants. And I can pick out certain landscape architects of going, it's cookie cutter. It's wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Uh, It's the same thing. And it's like, you miss so many great plants. There's some fantastic native plants that I don't know why not being used. Ilex decidua, possum holly. Don't understand why I do not see this used enough. I wish that people would really start trying new things. Don't switch your mix, you know, 50%, 10%, something new. Every year, set a goal. I'm going to put 10% new plant into my portfolio. I'll get off my soapbox now. (laughs) (laughs) I've come to realize that we have seven acres here in downtown Kernersville. If you go just a little bit that way, you'll hit the highway. If you go that way, you hit another town. Downtown is right here. So all the development that's going around us, like there's somebody bought a house right behind us and they're taking down all their trees. It's constant turf and the same shrubs that John just described. I realize how important our little seven acres in downtown Kernersville truly is. The church across the street actually had a complete redesign of their parking lot. I was so proud because they came to me and said, we want you to look at this plant design, this plant list. Are these good plants? Do you recommend them? What do you recommend? I was like, this is great. Right across the street, we're going to have the prettiest church parking lot in Kernersville or, or actually in North Carolina, the Piedmont. They used us as a resource. And so going back to 40, the Department of Development, she came to me and it's like, what plants can we put on the interchange? And she used John's Hearts of Gold Redbud. They're all planted there. It's using us as a resource to better this entire community. And so if that means we don't recommend turf, well, that's okay. Plant something else that's going to be more beneficial to the environment. That's my soapbox. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) What garden myth would you like to smash? Oh, gosh. I don't want to say it. I'll go first. There is no such thing as a green thumb. There is no genetic gene exists that says you are a green thumb, you are a brown thumb. It's all about learning and trying new things. It frustrates me when people have this, I'll never be good. Yeah, you will. So you kill one plant, that's fine. I've killed thousands. Start out, don't try to do something complex at the beginning. Start small. It does frustrate me when people kind of throw in the towel that quickly and going, well, I just don't have a green thumb. No one is born with this magic gene that suddenly makes them able to grow anything. It's learning and experience over the years. And it always frustrates me. Like, I remember my sister growing certain plants and here I'm supposed to be this great gardener and I'll go down and I'm going, never looked that good for me. I wish people would get that phrase out of their head about a green thumb or a brown thumb. It just, it doesn't exist. Part of our mission is to inspire and connect you to the world of plants. I'm a big fan of the world of plants. I do think there are some plants native throughout the world that are great garden plants. Plants that are sustainable, plants that are beneficial, plants that are needed, that maybe are not native to North Carolina or even the South or even North America. There's some great plants coming out of Mexico, sages and salvias. Some of my favorite plants in the world. They provide nectar. They bloom for a very long period of time. There are so many species. They're quite hardy. And they're some of my favorite plants. 
I love salvias, and a lot of them derive from the southern part of the hemisphere. I love them. What was it about horticulture that drew you into it as a profession? I just like the outdoors. I've always been an outdoorsy person. I think, you know, we might be some of the last generations that grew up climbing trees. We didn't have the technology they have today. And I'm just speaking for me, of course. I just love being outdoors. And I was fortunate to have an aunt and uncle have a garden center. They actually had a produce stand. And my aunt was like, this is boring. I don't want to sell tomatoes all year round. I want to get into some ornamentals. And so she did. And she called me and my sisters up. She's like, you guys want a job? I got, I need some help at the garden center. We said, yes, it's stuck. All three of us are in horticulture here in North Carolina. We all got out of the tundra and just decided to move somewhere where we can garden all year round. I grew up doing it and I just absolutely love it. I continue to play in the mud. For me, I'm the youngest of four kids, and apparently I was the only one my dad, I don't know if he was just exhausted by this point, I was the only one he let do anything in the yard and garden. I remember getting a little plot. I remember having the big elephant ears and caladiums, awful design. I remember playing in the garden and having dahlias and things like that. I remember when I was 13 years old, him coming up to scout camp. I was celebrating my birthday while I was at scout camp, and he goes, well, you got two more years. Two more years of what? He goes, till you get a job. Sure enough, when I was 15, I put an application in at New Garden Nursery, then one at the Greensboro Science Center. It just so happened New Garden answered first. I think that's where, when you look back on your life where certain paths diverged, that was the start of going towards horticulture. And I remember working for New Garden. It was one of the premier garden centers on the East Coast for a long time. I loved being outside. I loved plants. It got its hooks in me, and it's like, oh, I could actually make a living doing this. Granted, I did head off to college. I was pre-med, and I was like, oh, I'll become a doctor so I can afford to garden. Two years into that, my brother's a doctor, and I'm like, uh, I don't know if this is really what I want. That and organic chemistry, I think, made those decisions for me. All right, share with us your funniest garden story. This one haunts me to this day. I did an internship with Tom Rainey up in the mountains. Todd Lassane, who was my mentor at NC State, he came up, and I don't know, I think Adrian was with him, but I remember pulling up to Tom Rainey's house, and there was a paperbark maple, Acer Grissium, right there, and I go, oh, that's the nicest Acer Grissium I've seen since the last one I saw, and everyone like looked at me and was like, that's a brilliant statement, and so every time we see a paperbark maple, it's like, that's the nicest one I've seen since the last one I saw. You know, when it comes to Tom Rainey, you've actually got a lot of great stories. Tom Rainey is such a goofy man. You wouldn't know it, but... (laughs) Yeah, one of the most brilliant plant minds out there, one of the most amazing plant breeders, but man, he's got a goofy sense of humor. What about going to Essen? Oh, I just remember we were driving around, and this is before GPS, and you know, you still had to print off MapQuest. We're driving around. We were in Belgium trying to get back to somewhere else. And we, we, you know, were running late and we got one of our hosts to print off the map. I just remember we get in the car, start driving, look down and realize the directions are in Dutch. Hearing Tom Rainey trying to pronounce these names and then, you know, I won't go into what some of the ones that he was saying, but Goofy laugh some of these pronunciations. And it's just like, you're turning around and going, really, Tom? Really? That was fun. It was Tom Rainey, Richard Olson, you know, who's at National Arboretum, and Todd Lassane and myself. And I mean, we just had a blast. <laughs> Freezing cold, but I think it was peak witch hazel season. Got to see the National Witch Hazel Collection. So it just, it, we had a lot of fun. Okay, Adrian, your funniest garden story. I'm sure I have some funnier ones, but this one stands out. Coming from Longwood Gardens, you know, you couldn't really grow a lot of cactus or succulents outdoors in the wintertime. Of course, we've learned over the years you can, but in most parts, when I was up at Longwood Gardens, they were under glass and was part of the display that you just didn't go near. Working for Tony Avent, I came in that first summer and uh, one of the garden designs he was installing was the cactus garden. It's a huge cactus garden. Some of the cactus actually probably were planted by John. They were growing and they were thriving. And I remember actually having to get up in the display to plant or pull weeds or water or mulch. And you're always looking ahead of you, never looking behind you. So when you turn around and you back up, you might back into a cactus. And guess what? That spine's probably going to stay where it punctured you. So most of the time was in the rear end. And so you're trying to look back behind you and you're like, just can't do it. So I don't remember who it was that said, go see Michelle Avent. So Tony Avent's first wife, Michelle, she was a little caretaker. 
You go see Michelle. She'd open her door and she's like, got tweezers right here. And she'd start working on it. Just absolutely. You cannot humiliate yourself in front of Michelle. She's like, been there, done that. And I think like a couple of weeks later, somebody else, one of another staff is like, I backed into a cactus. I'm like, go see Michelle. She will take care of everything. And she really did. And it wouldn't be my first time that I backed into a cactus. Again, you just, you don't learn from that and you just do it again and again. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go see Michelle. Okay, I'm going to disappear for a while. Y'all know where I'm going. Don't worry about it. I'll call right back. But she took really good care of us. And she just was like, again? Like, yeah, but there's a reason you have tweezers handy for you whenever you're gardening. <laughs> and they have hooks. So the tip, the terminal is a spike, but the secondary ones are hooked. <laughs> Sounds like you need to invent a shield for the rear end and cactus garden. Yeah, he's, you know. Yeah, the, the, the agaves were horrible. So it hooks itself right in. Oh, boy. That's painful thinking about it. All right. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Don't leave a hose on unattended. Seriously, if you're going to, like, fill up a pond or irrigate something, don't forget it. Because you're either going to overfill that pond or you're going to water too much in the garden and won't be able to walk on it the next day. I made those mistakes twice. Now that we have cell phones, you can actually put a timer on your cell phone. John, most valuable garden mistake. I've learned not to give up the ghost on certain plants. It's like, oh, it's dead. One week later, suddenly, oh my God, it's coming back. So learning to have patience, especially coming out of winter. I've been surprised by certain things. I remember we had a bromeliad that overwintered for us in Winston-Salem. That and cuss at your plants, threaten them. Just recently, just the grass seed at the gardens, I was like, I'm getting ready to call that grass company and chew them out. And I swear the next day the grass was up. (laughs) We've talked about your garden at your home a little bit, but I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have no rules. I think this is attributed to Dan Hinckley. Richard Olson said it was a t-shirt, and I wish he could find this t-shirt. It was something about, in the garden, as in life, there should be as little room for dogma as possible. In our garden, have fun. No rules. What would you say, Adrian? In our garden, we have... Speed bumps. And I don't mean, like, figuratively. I mean, like, literally, like, have views, uh, have vistas, have stopping points, have a reason to stop and reflect. Don't look at your garden as a whole. Look at your garden as little rooms. You have to stop yourself to enjoy the little moments. When I think about that area where I have sun, I want a perennial border, but you have to stop along the way. And you have to trick your eye into stopping through the landscape. Don't make it boring. Make it interesting so that you can stop and actually admire the view. What did your personal garden teach you this last year that you're going to apply next year? taught me that I need more water. That we actually started learning from and we made the investment of having someone connect into our well. So we've got some spigots now in the garden because Lord knows I was really tired of dragging hoses around. For me, the years of leaf litter and no gardening or no hardscape, no mowers, nothing, all that raw virgin land is very soft and you will get a dump truck stuck. And then when you get another vehicle to come and pull that dump truck out, that's going to get stuck too. That (laughs) happened twice this year because the ground was so soft. Even though it looked hard and firm, you go just a bit underneath it and it's soft because nothing's ever touched that ground before except for trees, tree roots, and leaf litter. I had no idea. just was very embarrassing getting two trucks stuck. Call my friend saying, you need to pull me out. And then him getting stuck too. (laughs) What's the future plans for your garden at home? Finish my perennial border. My perennial border is along the fence line. So on the other side of the fence of where the dogs are, but on our side, I don't want to see the fence. I want to see the dogs, of course. I just want it to be nice and full and lush. And I got to have patience. Like what John said, just be patient. But also, I might have to do some tweaking. I might have to move some things around. Certainly uh, go in and amend the soils a little bit more. I want to kind of finish that whole sunny area. I just want a perennial border because it's one of my favorite garden styles, especially after seeing so many famous perennial borders throughout the world. Duke has an amazing one. Great Dixter has an amazing one. Sissinghurst. All these amazing perennial borders. J.C. Ralston Arboretum, and I want to create one for myself. I have a lot of room, but it's not because the plants are immature. It's just because I know I have a lot of room. I think for me, I've got to complete the fence because the deer have done, I'm not an animal abuser, but it's crossed my mind to be a little sadistic with some deer. We've got to get our fences repaired, also get more on top of it, spraying liquid fence to at least when they get in that nothing is palatable for them. We've got a few things in that have been taken down the nubs. It's kind of heartbreaking. Okay, we've talked about a lot of different plants that you really like, but do you have a favorite plant this week? 
See, coming at this precock, the winter sweet, the buds are really getting full and lush. They're swelling. It's a shrub that flowers for us in January. With the warm weather we had prior to the cold snap, somebody actually was, John, it was your parents, who asked me, they came to visit our gardens. They're like, what is that sweet smelling plant out on the patio terrace? And I'm like, well, it's probably that daffodil because the daffodil was flowering. But they're like, no, it was way over on that side of the patio terrace. I'm like, I wonder if the winter sweet is getting ready to flower. And so sure enough, if the buds are swelling, and I wonder if it, um, one was open enough where that we could smell it. But winter sweet, definitely. We have two varieties of Chimonanthus praecox. We have Ludia, and then we have the normal species. Ludia is a soft butter yellow, whereas the straight species is just kind of that yellow, sunny yellow in your face. But both of them are on the property. I think my favorite plant right now, just walking around the garden, was seeing uh, dentaria was starting to come up, some of the tooth warts. I love these perennials that kind of start showing up when everything else is still locked down. It's kind of like, oh my God, there's hope. I love those plants that can kind of fill that void during winter. So right now, seeing the dentarias already leafed out, that's a happy moment for me. It's funny how I mentioned a woody and you mentioned a perennial. Usually it's the opposite. Yeah, we're having <laughs> positive impacts on each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is there something else I should have asked you or you wished I had asked you? I think we do need to give a shout out. Todd Lassane, he's had an integral role in both our lives, professional and personal. Back when I was at NC State, I took a plan ID course and I had Todd as my plan ID instructor. Todd is from Louisiana. I give him grief about this. He was talking about cannas and he talked about the, the two flower types. It was the, uh, oh, I can't remember what, the one type and then the orchid. And I remember sitting there going, what's orchid? You're raising my hand and it was orchid. It was his Louisiana accent. Todd was the one recommended that I go work at Plant Delights part-time, which, you know, of course, we would have never met. He guided me, he hired me at the Ralston part-time, and then full-time, he hired Adrian. He was the best man at our wedding. Todd's been there with us for the journey, and I think he's been a, he's been a great mentor. I really missed the boat because J.C. Ralston passed right before I started at NC State. But having Todd as a mentor has been fantastic. Some of my staff might be cussing it because I'm so anal retentive about certain things, and that's because I was trained that way. Todd was guiding influence in both our lives. And Bob Lyons. I could keep going, but Todd and Bob, they've been great sounding boards of when you're frustrated, call up Bob and kind of talk you down. We've been really lucky to have great mentors, and I think both of us try to echo that with our staff and other people of trying to encourage people along the way. John and I are coming up on 20 years marriage. It's been wonderful. The plant relationship we have works so well. You hear a lot or see a lot how people who have the same interests, they don't like to vacation together or they do go their separate ways or they don't want to go home and talk about their day. But we do. We talk about it, especially when John's garden is 100 acres. Mine's less than 10. His garden over 100 years old. Mine is only 10 years old. It's like we go home and we actually feed off of each other and it works. It works really well. Sometimes it doesn't work, but for the most part, you do. It, it's wonderful and it's great having these connections and friendships all throughout the country. And our home is open. If somebody comes to visit, we're like, you got a spare room, come hang out with us, especially with plant nerds. Now that we have a garden paradise at our own house, maybe it's not a garden paradise, but it's a certainly a tree paradise because there's so many wonderful trees on the property. It's just... It's amazing. It's just, it's fun. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I remember when we were buying our last car or what, but talking with the finance person and she was asking us what we did and we were describing it, talking about how in horticulture, we all help each other. Even thinking about the shortages that have been happening when one nursery was out of pots and their plants were coming in the next day and the competing nursery down the road delivered a load of pots to them. Trying to talk to someone outside of horticulture and explaining how this field is, they were just awed. It's it's a gigantic family. It's one of those things that is it going to be buying a yacht? No, but it gives you so much more than you ever expect being in horticulture. And I think that's one of the most amazing things. I think we're both blessed to be part of it. Tell us how people may connect with you. So I'm John Rothling. I'm director of Renolda Gardens of Wake Forest University. If you're interested in reaching out, you can always reach me at john, J-O-N, no H, at renolda.org. Or just general questions to the gardens is gardens at renolda.org. Adrian, tell us how people may connect with you. Sure. I'm Adrian Rothling, the director for Paul J. Senior Botanical Garden. 
and that's in downtown Kernsville, North Carolina. They can reach me at Adrian. it's A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, at P as in Paul, J, C as in cat, B as in boy, G as in garden, dot org, or info at pjcbg.org. This has been episode 92, When Plant Geeks Get Married, with Adrian and John Rothling on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Adrian and John. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.